Section 22 of Heroes Every Child Should Know. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Giordano. Heroes Every Child Should Know. Edited by Hamilton Wright Maybe. Section 22. Robert E. Lee. From Letters and Recollections of General Lee. By Captain Robert E. Lee. A Boy's Impressions. The first vivid recollection I have of my father is his arrival in Arlington, after his return from the Mexican War. I can remember some events of which he seemed a part, when we lived at Fort Hamilton, New York, about 1846, but they are more like dreams, very indistinct and disconnected, naturally so, for I was at that time about three years old. But the day of his return to Arlington, after an absence of more than two years, I have always remembered. I had a frock or blouse of some light wash material, probably cotton, a blue ground dotted over with white diamond figures. Of this I was very proud, and wanted to wear it on this important occasion. Eliza, my mammy, objecting, we had a contest, and I won. Clothed in this, my very best, and with my hair freshly curled in long golden ringlets, I went down into the large hall, where the whole household was assembled, eagerly greeting my father who had just arrived on horseback from Washington, having missed in some way the carriage which had been sent for him. There was visiting us at this time Mrs. Lippett, a friend of my mother's, with her little boy, Armistead, about my age and size, also with long curls. Whether he wore as handsome a suit as mine I cannot remember, but he and I were left together in the background, feeling rather frightened and awed, after a moment's greeting to those surrounding him, my father pushed through the crowd, exclaiming, Where is my little boy? He then took up in his arms and kissed, not me his own child, in his best frock with clean face and well-arranged curls, but my little playmate, Armistead. I remember nothing more of any circumstances connected with that time, save that I was shocked and humiliated. I have no doubt that he was at once informed of his mistake, and made ample amends to me. A letter from my father to his brother, Captain S. S. Lee, United States Navy, dated Arlington, June thirtieth, 1848, tells of his coming home. Here I am once again, my dear Smith, perfectly surrounded by Mary and her precious children, who seem to devote themselves to staring at the furrows in my face and the white hairs in my head. It is not surprising that I am hardly recognizable to some of the young eyes around me, and perfectly unknown to the youngest. But some of the older ones gaze with astonishment and wonder at me, and seem at a loss to reconcile what they see and what was pictured in their imaginations. I find them, too, much grown and all well, and I have much cause for thankfulness and gratitude to that good God who has once more united us. My next recollection of my father is in Baltimore, while we were on a visit to his sister, 
Mrs. Marshall, the wife of Judge Marshall. I remember being down on the wharves, where my father had taken me, to see the landing of a Mustang pony, which he had gotten for me in Mexico, and which had been shipped from Veracruz to Baltimore in a sailing vessel. I was all eyes for the pony, and a very miserable, sad-looking object he was. From his long voyage, cramped quarters, and unavoidable lack of grooming, he was rather a disappointment to me. But I soon got over all that. As I grew older, and was able to ride and appreciate him, he became the joy and pride of my life. I was taught to ride on him by Jim Connolly, the faithful Irish servant of my father, who had been with him in Mexico. Jim used often to tell me, in his quizzical way, that he and Santa Anna, the pony's name, were the first men on the walls of Chapultepec. This pony was pure white, five years old, and about fourteen hands high. For his inches, he was as good a horse as I ever have seen. While we lived in Baltimore, he and Grace Darling, my father's favorite mare, were members of our family. Grace Darling was a chestnut of fine size and of great power, which he had bought in Texas on his way out to Mexico, her owner having died on the march out. She was with him during the entire campaign, and was shot seven times. At least, as a little fellow, I used to brag about that number of bullets being in her, and since I could point out the scars of each one, I presume it was so. My father was very much attached and proud of her, always petting her and talking to her in a loving way, when he rode her or went to see her in her stall. Of her he wrote on his return home. I only arrived yesterday, after a long journey up the Mississippi, which route I was induced to take, for the better accommodation of my horse, as I wished to spare her as much annoyance and fatigue as possible, she already having undergone so much suffering in my service. I landed her at Wheeling, and left her to come over with Jim. Santa Anna was found lying cold and dead in the park of Arlington one morning, in the winter of sixty-sixty-one. Grace Darling was taken in the spring of 62 from the White House. Footnote. My brother's place on the Pomptke River, where the mayor had been sent for safekeeping. By some federal quartermaster, when McClellan occupied that place as his base of supplies during his attack on Richmond. When we lived in Baltimore, I was greatly struck one day by hearing two ladies who were visiting us saying, Everybody and everything his family, his friends, his horse, and his dog, loves Colonel Lee. The dog referred to was a black and tan terrier named Speck, very bright and intelligent, and really a member of the family, respected and beloved by ourselves, and well known to all who knew us. My father picked up its mother in the Narrows, while crossing from Fort Hamilton to the fortifications opposite on Staten Island, she had doubtless fallen overboard from some passing vessel, and had drifted out of sight before her absence had been discovered. He rescued her and took her home, where she was welcomed by his children and made much of. She was a handsome little thing, with cropped ears and a short tail. My father named her Dart. She was a fine ratter, and with the assistance of a Maltese cat, also a member of the family, 
the many rats which infested the house and stables were driven away or destroyed she and the cat were fed out of the same plate but dart was not allowed to begin the meal until the cat had finished speck was born at fort hamilton and was the joy of us children our pet and companion my father would not allow his tail and ears to be cropped when he grew up he accompanied us everywhere and was in the habit of going into church with the family as some of the little ones allowed their devotions to be disturbed by speck's presence my father determined to leave him at home on those occasions so the next sunday morning he was sent up to the front room of the second story after the family had left for church he contented himself for a while looking out of the window which was open it being summer time presently impatience overcame his judgment and he jumped to the ground landed safely notwithstanding the distance joined the family just as they reached the church and went in with them as usual much to the joy of the children after that he was allowed to go to church whenever he wished my father was very proud of him and loved to talk to him and about him as if he were really one of us in a letter to my mother dated fort hamilton january eighteenth eighteen forty six when she and her children were on a visit to arlington he thus speaks of him i am very solitary and my only companion is my dog and cats but speck has become so jealous now that he will hardly let me look at the cats he seems to be afraid that i am going off from him and never lets me stir without him lies down in the office from eight to four without moving and turns himself before the fire as aside from it becomes cold i catch him sometimes sitting up looking at me so intently that i am for a moment startled in a letter from mexico written a year later december twenty five eighteen forty six to my mother he says can't you cure poor speck cheer him up take him to walk with you and tell the children to cheer him up in another letter from mexico to his eldest boy just after the capture of vera cruz he sends this message to speck tell him i wish he was here with me he would have been of great service in telling me when i was coming upon the mexicans when i was reconnoitering around vera cruz their dogs frequently told me by barking when i was approaching them too nearly when he returned to arlington from mexico speck was the first to recognize him and the extravagance of his demonstrations of delight left no doubt that he knew at once his kind master and loving friend though he had been absent three years some time during our residence in baltimore speck disappeared and we never knew his fate from that early time i began to be impressed with my father's character as compared with other men every member of the household respected revered and loved him as a matter of course but it began to dawn on me that every one else with whom i was thrown held him high in their regard at forty-five years of age he was active strong and as handsome as he had ever been i never remember his being ill i presume he was indisposed at times but no impressions of that kind remain he was always bright and gay with us little folk romping playing and joking with us with the older children he was just as companionable and i have seen him join my elder brothers and their friends when they would try their powers at a high jump put up in our yard the two younger children he petted a great deal and our greatest treat was to get into his bed in the morning and lie close to him 
listening while he talked to us in his bright, entertaining way. This custom we kept up until I was ten years old, and over. Although he was so joyous and familiar with us, he was very firm in all proper occasions, never indulged us in anything that was not good for us, and exacted the most implicit obedience. I always knew that it was impossible to disobey my father. I felt it in me, I never thought why, but was perfectly sure when he gave an order that it had to be obeyed. My mother I could sometimes circumvent, and at times took liberties with her orders, construing them to suit myself. But exact obedience to every mandate of my father was a part of my life, and being at that time. In January 1849, Captain Lee was one of a board of army officers appointed to examine the coasts of Florida and its defenses, and to recommend locations for new fortifications. In April he was assigned to the duty of the construction of Fort Carroll, in the Patapsco River, below Baltimore. He was there, I think, for three years, and lived in a house on Madison Street, three doors above Biddle. I used to go down with him to the fort quite often. We went to the wharf in a bus, and there we were met by a boat with two oarsmen, who rowed us down to Settler's Point, where I was generally left under the care of the people who lived there when my father went over to the fort, a short distance out in the river. These days were very happy ones for me. The wharves, the shipping, the river, the boat and oarsmen, and the country dinner we had at the house at Sellers Point, all made a strong impression on me. But above all I remember my father, his gentle, loving care for me, his bright talk, his stories, his maxims and teachings. I was very proud of him, and of the evident respect for and trust in him every one showed. These impressions, obtained at that time, have never left me. He was a great favorite in Baltimore, as he was everywhere, especially with ladies and little children. When he and my mother went out in the evening to some entertainment, we were often allowed to sit up and see them off. My father, as I remember, always in full uniform, always ready and waiting for my mother, who was generally late. He would then chide her gently, in a playful way, and with a bright smile. He would then bid us good-bye, and I would go to sleep with his beautiful picture on my mind, the golden epaulets and all, chiefly the epaulets. In Baltimore I went to my first school, that of a Mr. Rollins on Mulberry Street, and I remember how interested my father was in my studies, my failures, and my little triumphs. Indeed, he was so always, as long as I was at school and college, and I only wish that all of the kind, sensible, useful letters he wrote me had been preserved. My memory as to the move from Baltimore, which occurred in 1852, is very dim. I think the family went to Arlington to remain until my father had arranged for our removal to the new home at West Point. My recollection of my father as superintendent of the West Point Military Academy is much more distinct. He lived in the house, which is still occupied by the superintendent. It was built of stone, large and roomy, with gardens, stables, and pasture lots. We, the two youngest children, enjoyed it all. Grace Darling and Santa Anna were with us, and many a fine ride did I have with my father in the afternoons. When, released from his office, he would mount his old mare, and with Santa Anna carrying me by his side, take a five or ten mile trot. Though the pony cantered delightfully, he would keep me up in a trot, saying playfully 
that the hammering I sustained was good for me. We rode the dragoon seat, no posting, and until I became accustomed to it, I used to be very tired by the time I got back. My father was the most punctual man I ever knew. He was always ready for family prayers, for meals, and met every engagement, social or business, at the moment. He expected all of us to be the same, and taught us the use and necessity of forming such habits for the convenience of all concerned. I never knew him late for Sunday service at the post-chapel. He used to appear some minutes before the rest of us, in uniform, jokingly rallying my mother for being late, and for forgetting something at the last moment. When he could wait no longer for her, he would say that he was off, and would march along to church by himself, or with any of the children who were ready. There he sat very straight, well up in the middle aisle, and, as I remember, always became very sleepy, and sometimes even took a little nap during the sermon. At that time, this drowsiness of my father's was something awful to me, inexplicable. I knew it was very hard for me to keep awake, and frequently I did not, but why he, who to my mind could do everything that was right without any effort, should sometimes be overcome, I could not understand, and did not try to do so. It was against the rules that the cadets should go beyond certain limits without permission. Of course they did go sometimes, and when caught were given quite a number of demerits. My father was riding one afternoon with me, and, while rounding a turn in the mountain road with a deep woody ravine on one side, we came suddenly upon three cadets far beyond the limits. They immediately leaped over a low wall on the side of the road, and disappeared from our view. We rode on for a minute in silence. Then my father said, Did you know those young men? But no. If you did, don't say so. I wish boys would do what is right. It would be so much easier for all parties. He knew he would have to report them, but, not being sure of who they were, I presume he wished to give them the benefit of the doubt. At any rate, I never heard any more about it. One of the three asked me next day if my father had recognized them, and I had told him what had occurred. By this time I had become old enough to have a room to myself, and, to encourage me in being useful and practical, my father made me attend to it, just as the cadets had to do with their quarters in barracks and in camp. He had first even went through the form of inspecting it, to see if I had performed my duty properly, and I think I enjoyed this until the novelty wore off. However, I was kept at it, becoming in time very proficient, and the knowledge so acquired has been of great use to me all through life. My father always encouraged me in every healthy outdoor exercise and sport. He taught me to ride, constantly giving me minute instructions, with the reasons for them. He gave me my first sled, and sometimes used to come out where we boys were coasting to look on. He gave me my first pair of skates, and placed me in the care of a trustworthy person, inquiring regularly how I progressed. It was the same with swimming, which he was very anxious I should learn in a proper manner. Professor Bailey had a son about my age, now himself a professor of Brown University, Providence, Rhode Island, who became my great chum. I took my first lesson in the water with him, under the direction and supervision of his father. My father inquired constantly how I was getting along, and made me describe exactly my method and stroke, explaining to me what he considered the best way to swim, 
and the reasons therefor i went to a day school at west point and had always a sympathetic helper in my father often he would come into my room where i studied at night and sitting down by me would show me how to overcome a hard sentence in my latin reader or a difficult sum in arithmetic not by giving me the translation of the troublesome sentence or the answer to the sum but by showing me step by step the way to the right solutions he was very patient very loving very good to me and i remember trying my best to please him in my studies when i was able to bring home a good report from my teacher he was greatly pleased and showed it in his eye and voice but he always insisted that i should get the maximum that he would never be perfectly satisfied with less that i did sometimes win it deservedly i knew it was due to his judicious and wise method of exciting my ambition and perseverance i have endeavored to show how fond my father was of his children and as the best picture i can offer of his loving tender devotion to us all i give here a letter from him written about this time to one of his daughters who was staying with our grandmother mrs custis at arlington west point february twenty five eighteen fifty three my precious annie i take advantage of your gracious permission to write to you and there is no telling how far my feelings might carry me were i not limited by the conveyance furnished by the mims footnote his pet name for my mother letter which lies before me and which must the mim says so go in this morning's mail but my limited time does not diminish my affection for you annie nor prevent my thinking of you and wishing for you i long to see you through the dilatory nights at dawn when i rise and all day my thoughts revert to you in expressions that you cannot hear or i repeat i hope you will always appear to me as you are now painted on my heart and that you will endeavor to improve and so conduct yourself as to make you happy and me joyful all our lives diligent and earnest attention to all your duties can only accomplish this i am told you are growing very tall and i hope very straight i do not know what the cadets will say if the superintendent's children do not practice what he demands of them they will naturally say he had better attend to his own before he corrects other people's children and as he permits his to stoop it is hard he will not allow them you and agnes footnote his third daughter must not therefore bring me into discredit with my young friends or give them reason to think that i require more of them than of my own i presume your mother has told all about this our neighbors and our affairs and indeed she may have done that and not said much either so far as i know but we are all well and have much to be grateful for to-morrow we anticipate the pleasure of your brothers footnote his son curtis company which is always a source of pleasure to us it is the only time we see him except when the corps come under my view at some of their exercises when my eye is sure to distinguish him among his comrades and follow him over the plain give much love to your dear grandmother grandfather agnes miss sue lucretia and all his friends including the servants write sometimes and think always of your affectionate father r e lee in a letter to my mother written many years previous to this he says i pray god to watch over and direct our efforts in guarding our dear little son oh what pleasure i lose in being separated from my children 
nothing can compensate me for that in another letter of about the same time you do not know how much i have missed you and the children my dear mary to be alone in a crowd is very solitary in the woods i feel sympathy with the trees and birds in whose company i take delight but experience no pleasure in a strange crowd i hope you are all well and will continue so and therefore must again urge you to be very prudent and careful of those dear children if i could only get a squeeze of that little fellow turning up his sweet mouth to keys baba you must not let him run wild in my absence you will have to exercise firm authority over all of them this will not require severity or even strictness but constant attention in an unwavering course mildness and forbearance will strengthen their affection for you while it will maintain your control over them in a letter to one of his sons he writes as follows i cannot go to bed my dear son without writing you a few lines to thank you for your letter which gave me great pleasure you and custis must take great care of your kind mother and dear sisters when your father is dead to do that you must learn to be good be true kind and generous and pray earnestly to god to enable you to keep his commandments and walk in the same all the days of your life i hope to come on soon to see that little baby you have got to show me you must give her a kiss for me and one to all the children to your mother and grandmother the expression of such sentiments as these was common to my father all through his life and to show that it was all children and not his own little folk alone that charmed and fascinated him i quote from a letter to my mother i saw a number of little girls all dressed up in their white frocks and pantalettes the hair plaited and tied up with ribbons running and chasing each other in all directions i counted twenty-three nearly the same size as i drew up my horse to admire the spectacle a man appeared at the door with the twenty-fourth in his arms my friend said i are all these your children yes he said and there are nine more in the house and this is the youngest upon further inquiry however i found that they were only temporarily his and that they were invited to a party at his house he said however he had been admiring them before i came up and just wished that he had a million of dollars and that they were all his in reality i do not think the eldest exceeded seven or eight years old it was the prettiest sight i have seen in the west and perhaps in my life as superintendent of the military academy at west point my father had to entertain a good deal and i remember well how handsome and grand he looked in uniform how genial and bright how considerate of everybody's comfort of mind and body he was always a great favorite with the ladies especially the young ones his fine presence his gentle courteous manners and kindly smile put them at once at ease with them among the cadets at this time were my eldest brother custis who graduated first in his class in eighteen fifty four and my father's nephew fitzlee a third classman besides other relatives and friends saturday being a half holiday for the cadets it was the custom for all social events in which they were to take part to be placed on that afternoon or evening nearly every saturday a number of these young men were invited to our house to tea or supper for it was a good substantial meal the misery of some of these lads owing to embarrassment possibly from awe of the superintendent was pitiable and evident even to me a boy of ten or twelve years old but as soon as my father got command as it were of the situation 
one could see how quickly most of them were put at their ease he would address himself to the task of making them feel comfortable and at home and his genial manner and pleasant ways at once succeeded in the spring of eighteen fifty three my grandmother mrs custis died this was the first death in our immediate family she was very dear to us and was admired esteemed and loved by all who had ever known her bishop meade of virginia writes of her mrs mary custis of arlington the wife of mr washington custis grandson of mrs general washington was the daughter of mr william fitzhugh of chatham scarcely is there a christian lady in our land more honored than she was and none more loved and esteemed for good sense prudence sincerity benevolence unaffected piety disinterested zeal and every good work deep humanity and retiring modesty for all the virtues which adorn the wife the mother and the friend i never knew her superior in a letter written to my mother soon after the sad event my father says may god give you strength to enable you to bear and say his will be done she has gone from all trouble care and sorrow to a holy immortality there to rejoice and praise forever the god and saviour she so long and truly served let that be our comfort and that our consolation may our death be like hers may we meet in happiness in heaven in another letter about the same time he writes she was to me all that a mother could be and i yield to none in admiration for her character love for her virtues and veneration for her memory at this time my father's family and friends persuaded him to allow r s weir professor of painting and drawing at the academy to paint his portrait as far as i remember there was only one sitting and the artist had to finish it from memory or from the glimpses he obtained of his subject in the regular course of their daily lives at the point this picture shows my father in the undress uniform of a colonel of engineers footnote his appointment of superintendent of the military academy earned with it the temporary rank of colonel of engineers and many think it a very good likeness to me the expression of strength peculiar to his face is wanting and the mouth fails to portray that sweetness of disposition so characteristic of his countenance still it was like him at that time my father never could bear to have his picture taken and there are no such likenesses of him that really give his sweet expression sitting for a picture was such a serious business with him that he never could look pleasant in eighteen fifty five my father was appointed to the lieutenant colonelcy of the second cavalry one of the two regiments just raised he left west point to enter upon his new duties and his family went to arlington to live during the fall and winter of eighteen fifty five and fifty six the second cavalry was recruited and organized at jefferson barracks missouri under the direction of colonel lee and in the following spring was marched to western texas where it was assigned the duty of protecting the settlers in that wild country i did not see my father again until he came to my mother at arlington after the death of her father g w p custis in october eighteen fifty seven he took charge of my mother's estate after her father's death and commenced at once to put it in order not an easy task as it consisted of several plantations and many negroes i was at a boarding school after the family returned to arlington and saw my father only during the holidays if he happened to be at home he was always fond of farming and took great interest in the improvements he immediately began at arlington relating to the cultivation of the farm 
to the buildings, roads, fences, fields, and stock, so that in a very short time the appearance of everything on the estate was improved. He often said that he longed for the time when he could have a farm of his own, where he could end his days in quiet and peace, interested in the care and improvement of his own land. This idea was always with him. In a letter to his son, written in July 1865, referring to some proposed indictments of prominent confederates he says as soon as i can ascertain their intention toward me if not prevented i shall endeavor to procure some humble but quiet abode for your mother and sisters where i hope they can be happy as i before said i want to get in some grass country where the natural product of the land will do much for my subsistence again in a letter to his son dated october eighteen sixty five after he had accepted the presidency of washington college lexington virginia i should have selected a more quiet life and a more retired abode than lexington i should have preferred a small farm where i could have earned my daily bread about this time i was given a gun of my own and was allowed to go shooting by myself my father to give me an incentive offered a reward for every crow scalp i could bring him and in order that i might get to work at once advanced a small sum with which to buy powder and shot the sum to be returned to him out of the first scalps obtained my industry and zeal were great my hopes high and by good luck i did succeed in bagging two crows about the second time i went out i showed them with great pride to my father intimating that i should shortly be able to return him his loan and that he must be prepared to hand over to me very soon further rewards for my skill his eyes twinkled, and his smile showed that he had strong doubts of my making an income by killing crows. And he was right, for I never killed another, though I tried hard and long. I saw but little of my father after we left West Point. He went to Texas, as I have stated, in 55, and remained until the fall of 57, the time of my grandfather's death. He was then at Arlington about a year. Returning to his regiment, he remained in Texas until the autumn of 59, when he came again to Arlington, having applied for leave in order to finish the settling of my grandfather's estate. During this visit he was selected by the Secretary of War to suppress the famous John Brown raid, and was sent to Harper's Ferry in command of the United States troops. From his memorandum book the following entries are taken. October 17, 1859. Received orders from the Secretary of War, in person, to repair an evening train to Harper's Ferry reached Harper's Ferry at 11 p.m., posted Marines in the United States Armory, waited until daylight, as a number of citizens were held as hostages, whose lives were threatened. Tuesday about sunrise, with twelve Marines, under Lieutenant Green, broke in the door of the engine house, secured the insurgents, and relieved the prisoners unhurt. All the insurgents killed or mortally wounded, but four, John Brown, Stevens, Copy, and Shields. Brown was tried and convicted, and sentenced to be hanged, on December 2, 1859. Colonel Lee writes as follows to his wife, Harper's Ferry, December 1, 1859. I arrived here, dearest Mary, yesterday about noon, with four companies from Fort Monroe, and was busy all the evening and night getting accommodation for the men, etc., and posting sentinels and pickets to ensure timely notice of the approach of the enemy. The night has passed off quietly. The feelings of the community seem to be calmed down, and I have been received with every kindness. 
Mr. Fry is among the officers from Old Point. There are several young men, former acquaintance of ours, as cadets, Mr. Bingham, Acusis's class, Sam Cooper, etc. But the senior officers I never met before, except Captain Howell, the friend of our cousin Harriet R. I presume we are fixed here till after the 16th. Tomorrow will probably be the last of Captain Brown. There will be less interest for the others, but still I think the troops will not be withdrawn till they are similarly disposed of. Custis will have informed you that I had to go to Baltimore the evening that I left you, to make arrangements for the transportation for the troops. This morning I was introduced to Mrs. Brown, who, with a Mrs. Tyndall and a Mr. and Mrs. McKim, all from Philadelphia, had come on to have a last interview with her husband. As it is a matter over which I have no control, I referred them to General Telefero. Footnote, General William B. Telefero, Commanding Virginia Troops at Harper's Ferry. You must write to me at this place. I hope you are all well. Give love to everybody. Tell Smith, footnote, Sidney Smith Lee, of the United States Navy, his brother, that no charming women have insisted on taking care of me, as they are always doing of him. I am left to my own resources. I will write you again soon, and will always be truly and affectionately yours, R. E. Lee. Mrs. M. C. Lee In February 1860, he was ordered to take command of the Department of Texas. There he remained a year. The first months after his arrival were spent in the vain pursuit of the famous brigand, Cortinez, who was continually stealing across the Rio Grande, burning the homes, driving off the stock of the ranchmen, and then retreating into Mexico. The summer months he spent in San Antonio, and while there, interested himself with the good people of that town, in building an Episcopal church, for which he contributed largely. End of section 22. Recording by Greg Giordano. Newport Ritchie, Florida.